Erin Hesse, the Connections Coordinator at High Point Church, and I'm here with the Senior Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're going to be talking a little bit about the history and stories that have brought us here to High Point, and um, the reason we want to do that is because we know on a Sunday morning or throughout the week, it's difficult to do that on a regular basis with some of our staff and pastors and elders because we're all busy, and so being able to hear a little bit about our background and what makes us who we are, not just uh, what we do is really valued. And so we're actually going to start today with talking to Nick himself and hearing a little bit of his story and what ended up bringing him to High Point. So Nick, <laughs> let's hear your story. So I, I was I was um, born at a very young age in the state of infancy. Um, <laughs> I was born in upstate New York near Canada, a lot uh, closer to Canada than Syracuse. And I was born to agnostic parents. I used to say my dad was a negative agnostic and my mom a positive one. Like she sort of wanted to believe in God, but sort of didn't. And my dad sort of really didn't want to believe in God and didn't. <laughs> and, didn't. <laughs> and so, and my mom actually grew up, she's, she uh, grew up under Mussolini. Oh, and wow. So there's an enormous amount of propaganda in Italy at the time. And so she got this huge message from her family of don't let anyone brainwash you. So literally when I was in like fourth grade, and she sent me to Catholic parochial Christian education, which was still allowed in the <laughs> So you'd leave school for the last like hour of the day and go over to the Catholic church next door for like religious education. The advice she gave me before my first day of religious education was don't let them brainwash you. That's not intimidating yeah, at all. Not at all. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. So anyway, um, but I've always, I always sort of found the idea that God existed credible. Like I, <laughs> I mean, like most humans. And, but I, but I found it kind of confusing. I found Roman Catholicism. Uh, in the particular parish I was in, and with the particular priests that we received, we got, you know, we were out in the middle of nowhere, so we got sort of priests in their late 70s that, you know what I mean, that yeah. were that were very small parishes, and they just, there just weren't anybody, there was nobody to make anything exciting. Mm-hmm. Nobody was excited <laughs> anymore. And so I became an altar boy just so I could get through church services, and I basically just spent my time, like, making faces at this, like, pretty blonde girl <laughs> in my class out in the church. And so in our, our family go and like sort of fits and spurts. My dad never went to church ever. Um, and my mom would like, we'd go for like a month and then we just stopped going for four months. Hmm. And then we'd go again for two months every other week. And then we just stopped going for a half a year. Hmm. It was that sort of thing. Yeah. And so um, I got a little bit of sort of like religious-ishness from all that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get a sense that like church was something that I just, I knew that there was some mysterious Jesus God thing and that I should be sorry for my sins or something mm-hmm. and that if I was really good then maybe God would accept me. I totally believed in the sort of moral scale of spirituality that if I do more good than bad then I'll go to heaven. And to the credit of the Roman Catholic Church I was in I was asked one time how I thought people got to heaven in a Roman Catholic Sunday school and I said that and my teacher said that's not how it works. Wow. She said that's not how it works. You mm-hmm. want to be good and you want your life to have yeah. more good than bad in it, um, which isn't a very, that's not a very reformed doctrine, yeah. <laughs> you know, of sin. But she, but she did say, you can go to heaven because Jesus died for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there's a bunch of stuff about the Eucharist and things, but sure. it was based on this idea that Jesus had died for my sins. Yeah. And How I old were you? Forgiveness. So I was in like, I don't know, fifth grade, sixth okay. grade. And I remember other, other friends of mine treating this Sunday school teacher, like she was stupid. Hmm. Like they, they kind of scorned the religious worldview. Yeah. And I remember thinking that was dumb. Hmm. That like, I was kind of skeptical. And I knew my, 
my parents were kind of skeptical, and I knew I wasn't supposed to get brainwashed. But I remember seeing this kind of like flippant, um, coy kind of like, I'm better than this sort of anti-religiosity. And I remember thinking that wasn't right either. Right. And so there, was, there had to be something that wasn't that, but that was fair, something like, right? Mm-hmm. So ultimately I went, what, this is how the dam broke, is in fifth grade, one of the big spiritual cataclysmic experiences was I started to like girls. Right, I was entering puberty. I started like girls, and I was a uh, just a profound late bloomer. So while my wife was growing like seven inches in fifth grade, yeah, and was like the earliest bloomer in her whole school district, yeah, I was like I was the kid that they were drawing leg hair on my sophomore year in high school. Okay, and so it was very hard to get the attention of females if that's who you are. Right. So I heard about this Christian children's camp in the Adirondack Mountains in New York that had two girls for every guy at camp. And this was like sleepaway camp, right? And so I, out of sheer religious devotion, asked my parents if they would send sure, me to this camp. Sure, exactly. Right? And so they, they were like, sure. So they sent me to this camp, and all the stories were true. And so it was, but it was, I also grew up camping as a kid. My dad was a big outdoors person, a fisherman, all those kinds of things. And so it was just heaven. Like it was this ropes course, and I'm swinging from trees and jumping off things mm-hmm. and hanging out with other kids and talking to girls and they're talking back to me <laughs> and this and, but here's one thing that was really different you know i've been going to public school my whole life and some kids were nice some kids were not i didn't really have close friends most people there was a, it was like a wolf pack of viciousness like children are yep. it was the first place i experienced an environment of real christian community okay. mainly driven by the staff which were all called christian college students yeah and it, people just loved each other and they cared about each other and they weren't vicious. And when people were mean, like they would step in and be like, you don't treat people like that here. And they're like, oh, that's kind of weird. And I saw the non-Christian kids that were at the camp kind of laugh at them. And I, I remember watching them laugh at this guy named Eric Bazell, who at Fireside, he like closed his eyes when he sang these religious songs about Jesus. And he like raised both his hands up in the air while he was seated with like this expression of love and and deep enjoyment on his face. And I remember kids literally poking each other and snickering, watching him do that. And I know now that that was totally intentional on his part for him to model that kind of devotion and worship. Anyway, so the, I, so the, the long story short here is, is that I accepted Jesus like every year for like <laughs> seven years or something. I, I, I normally date about age 14 or 15 as my like conversion experience where I think I accepted Jesus and I think he sort of accepted me back Mm -hmm. in the the sense that like, I think I experienced something of regeneration at that moment. I think Mm -hmm. God had, I think God had been with me throughout my childhood. Mm -hmm. There'd always been some exchange of faith in there. And so for all that I know, I was saved much earlier in God's eyes. But at that, there's something happened in me that year where Mm -hmm. there was a seriousness. There was a reality of my own sin and it was precipitated by, we got to this, um, campsite away from camp it was again a beaver camp yep. it was te- it was i think it was teen camper the year before that i'm 14 and there were the pastor was reading his bible and i just didn't know any better than to say what are you reading <laughs> and um i had never been to a protestant church before i you know i still a roman catholic youth i'd i'd gone i hadn't gone to a youth group yet or anything like that and so he took me through what we know as the romans road like going through the epistle yep. to the romans and like the different all the way through salvation i'd never heard that before wow Never heard about sin in that way. Never heard about the cross in that way. Never heard about the freedom from sin in that, any of that. I didn't hear any of that stuff. I'd never heard the doctrine of justification in like clear like mm-hmm. that. Before. 
And I remember thinking, oh man, well that's really clear and whatever. And so, um, so I did the, it was like literally, literally it was the biggest evangelical Christian cliche. I was on a camp out at a Christian <laughs> camp while some teenage college student was playing literally amazing grace on the guitar <laughs> at a campfire where a fundamentalist pastor invited us to accept Jesus by going over there and praying. Was, that was literally. To the Romans crazy. road. Too. Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had just gone through the Romans. Yeah. Like it was the most sort of Christian world, evangelical cliche. It was nothing but new stars in the sky for me. Huh. Like I'd never experienced that stuff before. And so to me, it just seemed great and terrifying. And so then I went through a high school period of just like not really doing it. Um, because I went back. Freshman year was just terrible. My, my seventh and eighth grade years were my worst years of my life. And I've had, I've, I have a disabled child, right? So like the yeah. year he was born, that was a tough year. Seventh and eighth grade were much worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ninth grade wasn't much better. And then about halfway through my sophomore year, I grew like six inches and I turned from like this boy looking human into like a man looking human. Mm-hmm. And at that point, my character was not ready for all of the desires I'd had of people ca- caring about me yeah. and being interested in me. So all of a sudden I was a key player on my sports teams. And I was interesting to girls, like just overnight. Hmm. And that's what I really always wanted, not Jesus. Right. And so when that materialized in my sophomore year going into my junior year, it was just, um, I had no character capacity to handle any of that and no, no desire to. Hmm. And so I kind of lived this sort of split life because I started going to this military youth group at Fort Drum, right near my house. Okay. So I'd go to this youth group. It was very light theologically, but there were really loving people there. Mm-hmm. And then I would just try to be the coolest kid I could be mm-hmm. with getting the most girls interested in me I possibly could and just enjoying the effusiveness of the devotion of others and just um, sort of sucking that up like an emotional vampire. Mm-hmm. And um, Which does make some sense because you didn't, I mean, you hadn't experienced that at all. I mean, and the opposite of that growing up. And so... Yeah, and my mom will tell you, like, about the time I was in seventh grade, she had this very, very profound hormonal imbalance. Like, she was bucking us crazy for, like, three years. Hmm. And they were, those are really important years of a young man's life. Yeah. Seventh grade to ninth grade. Yeah. I mean, she just, uh, she, she essentially, um, eventually had a hysterectomy to kind of, like, hmm. even that out. And it really helped her a lot. And now she's like, everybody who knows my mom is just kind of like, she's just amazing. And she was, yeah. she was that woman. She was also another woman. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really tough for me, yeah. right? And so I didn't know what, how a woman should act. Mm-hmm. I had no sisters. I had only my mom. None of my aunts and uncles were nearby. They were in Erie, Pennsylvania, a six-hour car right away. So women were completely mystifying to me. I knew they were somehow important. I had no idea how they were supposed to function. Mm-hmm. And my dad and mom didn't have a particularly healthy um, romantic and engendered relationship mm-hmm. with each other, though they had a healthy relationship in other ways. And so I just had no category for any of this. And I was I was totally awash. There was no older person in my life helping me with right. that. And I would just, so I just kind of like confused my way through the thing. Until in about the end of my junior year in high school, I kind of had had enough. Like the thing had to run its course. I felt like a scumbag. I had had their parents of girls that I had dated had talked to my mom about how big a jerk I had been to them. And um, people in my girls in my youth group were starting to look at me like I was like the biggest jerk ever, though they still wanted to go out with me. And That's how it works. It was just, it was like, it, I just felt dirty i just yeah. felt and not and it wasn't so much other people's condemnation i i think i felt a very profound sense of true internal moral guilt and i felt like that 
there was a conviction from the Holy Spirit that was faithful for the better part of two years. Just a faithful, patient conviction. This isn't right. This isn't who you are. You're not supposed to be doing this. Those women are my daughters. Sports, soccer is not what this world is about. That kind of stuff. And it kept me from fully giving myself into those things. And so I never got, I mean, I drank alcohol, but I never really got drunk. Um, I toyed with love, but I never got involved in promiscuity. Um, and so it, it was enormously gracious. I totally, I, I experienced what it means to live two lives. I'm done with it. I, I mean, I got that vaccination, and yet I didn't pay much of a price for it. And I attribute that all to the grace of God. I, act, I acted despicably, and um, I received an enormous amount of gracious patience from God. Hmm. So about that time, I was like, okay, this is disgusting. So anyway, um, my senior year in high school, I moved more towards some friends, and I challenged another Christian friend of mine named Nate Belcher. I was like, listen, we need to like actually be Christians this year. This is bold. What, what we're doing is bold. <laughs> we need to like actually act like Christians this year. And some of our older friends who are very not Christians um, and had kind of been leading us in that direction had graduated. And so that year began to turn things around. And so by the time I went to college, there had been enough solidifying for me that I knew what I had to do when I got there. I needed to go and find Christians and be part of a local church, be part of a college ministry, and I needed to have Christians around me. And I knew that choosing to do that or not to do that was the choice to lose or keep my faith. So many teenagers don't realize that. If you're 18 and you're going to college, especially if it's not a Christian college, that's profoundly Christian, Mm -hmm. if you get involved in a local church and in a small group or in a college ministry that loves Jesus and that you know will push you and keep you, that is the choice whether or not you're going to be a Christian. It just is. To say, well, I'm going to try this and not... You're just kidding yourself. Either you get involved in crew or intervarsity or navigators or something like that, or, or a good gospel believer local church, or you're choosing not to be a Christian mm-hmm. anymore. right? Mm-hmm. And I re- by, the, by the time I got to the end of that senior year, I knew that. And I'd been, I'd been going to a church where the pastor, who had no theological education, preached for about an hour and 20 minutes out of the Bible every week. Wow. And he was bright. I mean, his IQ was north of 120, and um, he really cared about the Bible. And he was a little legalistic in certain ways. Um, not, not a moralist, but he, he drove holiness as a kind of moral performance kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read, Sears called it about in Holy Life, but like William Law is like, if you sin, it's because you never really intended not to. Hmm. Right? Yep. Which is kind of true. Yeah. But you, you can see how that can get kind of moralistic really fast. Yeah. That like, the depth of your actual devotion determines your godliness, not the power of the Holy Spirit, for example. Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of this fine line between the hard call to holiness, which is good, and that it's by the grace of Christ mm-hmm. and by the power of the Holy Spirit that you're sanctified. So it, he, his name is Mark Mesha. He really kind of struggled in that. And he said years later, people who were, who were sort of powerful of personality grew a lot at that church, but we were terrible to hurting people. Huh. And he told me that when I had been in ministry like four years, and I was like, you are right. And, I, and you can see that about me still to this day. Tough people who need to be like driven, who need like somebody to get in their face and be like, look, you're not ten, five-tenths of what you're meant to be. Who can actually hear that, and that actually inspires them to step up? I'm great with that kind of person. But still to this day, I'm, I'm worse with, because I'm that kind of person. Right. I'm worse with people who just like, they're just hurt. Yeah. And they need somebody to hold them and mm-hmm. help them. 
I still, that's hard for me. It's harder for me, though I love those people. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so I went to college. I did college ministry for four years. Um, I was basically the point person for two college ministries, and there were no staff workers. Wow. So like for crew students, or somebody who might be listening to this, where you have like three or four staff on your campus, like you need to praise the Lord because <laughs> I, we had nothing. Did you just come up with something, like a program? Well, we had a, a part-time pastor for one of them for a while, and then he moved. Okay. And then the other one was all student-led, but student-led without any staff workers. So once a semester, we'd go to like a conference, and then we'd come home, and that's it. We'd never hear from the staff worker again. So literally, we were on this campus. I'm 18 or 19. I'm running a college ministry. I am the pastor for the campus. Wow. Right? Yeah. And I know nothing, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm literally having debates about Jesus with professors, usually not in class. Every once in a while, I'd say something in class, but not. I tried not to be obnoxious. Mm-hmm. And so after my freshman year, I went on this trip, and I got a bunch of books. And the first book I got, and I'm saying this because there's some people at High Point that think like I'm, sm- I'm this smart guy, that like I've always been smart and I've always had a big vocabulary, whatever. That was, that's not true. I knew that somebody had to be able to speak intelligently about Christianity on that campus. And there weren't a lot of people that could do that. And so I got this book, and I still remember it was by Ravi Zacharias. It was called A Shattered Visage, The Real Face of Atheism. And it was about essentially how Nietzsche could lead you to Christ, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, um, Zacharias is actually known for using higher syllabic words yeah. that he really needs to sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And so I had to read that book with a pad on one leg and a college dictionary on the other. And I had three pages. By the time I was two chapters in the book, I had three pages of words that I had written out the word and written out the whole definition and then reviewed. And then I had five pages of quotes I'd written out. So I had to highlight a quote that was like, great. And then I would write it out in its entirety so I could memorize it. So to this day, G.K. Chesterton, an open mind, like has a, like a open mouth has a purpose, and that is to be closed upon something solid. Otherwise, it becomes like a city sewer rejecting nothing. Right? I was like, that encapsulates a very important <laughs> idea. Yeah. And so to this, I mean, I memorized that when I was 19. I still know the basic. Yeah. I'm clearly not word for word, but the basic. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and that began a process for me. When I finished mm-hmm. that book, I got the God Who's There books by Francis Schaeffer that's probably way before your time um, and read through those, did the same thing. Yeah. And by the time I got through those, I didn't have to look at very many words anymore. It's amazing. Once you increase your vocabulary, you get to where you're good. Yeah. yeah. So, and that just led me to read more. And, and the more I read, the more mistakes I'd made, the more I didn't know, the more obviously inadequate I was and so on. And yet, the college ministry had gone from four students to 12 students to 25 students to 45 students before I had to leave to, to student teach. And so I knew that like I wanted to do this. I knew I cared about ministry. I knew somebody had to stand up for the gospel. I knew somebody, you know, and yet I knew that I was like not ready to mm-hmm. do it. And so by that time I had met Alexi the first week of my sophomore year. We dated those three and a half years off and on about 25 times. <laughs> and then uh, so I graduated, we got married and I just went straight to seminary. And I'd planned to be like a roving evangelist, but I, I, but I chose to study Bible and theology rather than just religious philosophy mm-hmm. because I knew that I had to have the gospel and the Bible right. And then I could add philo- philosophical right. sophistication to that. But I, I, I was like, man, I got to know the Bible, right? And I, the last thing I ever wanted to be was a pastor because I'd had, I, the churches I'd been in frustrated me. In fact, there's one moment, I sometimes I tell people this, I was 19 years old, I was in this church, it was a good evangelical, charismatic church. And 
I'm sitting there, I'm listening to the pastor preach. He was known in our whole region to be like a good preacher. And it was so appalling how poor this sermon was. I mean, just no, no Bible, no preparation, no outline, no clarity, nothing any deeper than I'd already thought, and I was 19. And I remember thinking, this is probably, I don't know how arrogant it was, how connected to reality, <laughs> but I remember sitting there thinking, I could walk up there right now and do better than this. And I'm 19. Church should not be this way. This is crazy. And yet he stood up there and part of his, part of that sermon was him kind of berating the congregation for three or four minutes about how they don't invite people to church. Hmm. And I was like, listen, you know, I don't invite people to church because this is what they're going to hear. And so I, I, like that was, so I didn't want to be a pastor because that was my experience. But at the same time, I knew that was my problem. Whatever the problems the church had were problems with the church Jesus had created. And I see a lot of younger people and people in that kind of age category I was in be like, the church stinks, I'm not going to be part of it. Right. And I'm just kind of like, oh my gosh, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Because if you understand the gospel, Jesus created the local church. Mm-hmm. That's, that's his thing. Mm-hmm. And so if it stinks, you better do something about it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I had that kind of notion, but I didn't have a theology of the local church that, like, I should be a pastor. So I want to be, like, a roving evangelist kind of person, like a Bill, Bill William Lane Craig or Ravi Zacharias, obviously, because they did close to me. Mm-hmm. And so I got to seminary, and I was learning Bible and theology, took Greek and Hebrew, all that kind of stuff. Listen, I had plenty of marriage problems because I studied too much, <laughs> and so on. That's a story for another time, probably. <laughs> and I had a pastoral mentor named Greg Sharp, who still teaches at Trinity, and... He um, he, basically gave me a theology of the local church. That it's great that you love Jesus. It's great that you love the Bible. It's great that you love theology. It's great that you care about the university and that you want to speak into the lives of students. It's great that you're willing to get a PhD to go do that. That's all great. But listen, the local church is God's plan A. It just is. Yeah. That, that's, it's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. And it's great to have professors in academia. It's great to have Christians in politics. We need Christians to start businesses. We need all that kind of stuff. But what we need are great pastors. And as I looked around at my colleagues at Trinity, Trinity is a very academic seminary. Mm-hmm. And it's great in lots of other things, but it's really academic. And I looked around, and many of my other colleagues that wanted to get PhDs were clearly social misfits. <laughs> so the, and they'd be great 14 hours a day in the library. You know, working through the stacks and yeah. writing about Assyrian history and stuff like that. But they couldn't leave a church. Mm-hmm. They couldn't preach sermons in front of people. Mm-hmm. And I realized that we needed some people who could get PhDs and maybe even be kind of rock star professors because they'd give cool lectures. We needed some of those people to be local pastors. And I realized I could do that. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that that probably is what I should be doing, even though it was the least cool possible. <laughs> so, but it was the most logical the path for you to take it, it was because yeah. of my giftings mm-hmm. I didn't just have the academic giftings and the bibli- like the biblical studies giftings mm-hmm. I had the giftings to talk to people mm-hmm. and I could write talks and I could speak engagingly and not mm-hmm. put everybody to sleep and, and I could deal with this problem of church stink being terrible mm-hmm. and there's actually there's tons of people my age who are pastors and you can talk to them they'll be like yeah I just couldn't I was so frustrated with how bad church <laughs> and huh. something else had to happen so anyway, and, and so for lots of bad and good reasons, I got into pastoral ministry. Mm. The problem is, is that when I first candidated out of seminary, um, nobody wanted me to be their pastor. <laughs> and so I, I was a youth pastor for Christ Church in Lake Forest. And then, I, um, and then about, uh, so about a year into that, 
a church in Florida started calling me and um, they had even worse options than me. <laughs> and so this guy named Doug Pennington, who's still a good friend, um, sort of so took a bet on me and hired me when I was, I was 26 and he had grown this church and he really needed somebody good. And I was, you know, God help him, I was the best thing he could find. <laughs> and um, I served that church for seven years. And it went from about 450 to about 1,000 people. We moved buildings. We bought this exercise center. And I like a whole bunch of stuff happened. It was really cool. I learned a lot about what I want to do and not want to do. Um, and I learned a ton about how to treat people in, in the South. There's so many bigoted stereotypes about the South. Listen, I loved it. And it really tempered our New York attitude. So we're like, we're like yeah. New Yorker Southerners. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine what that's like. Not and then, easy. you know, we're kind of learning how to be Midwesterners. But the Midwest has been the most difficult culture we've ever tried to acclimate Really? To. Yeah, everybody, everybody's surprised about that. But, I'm <laughs> like, but this, is the, this is the culture in America that will not let you in. And it's partly because they're emotionally stable. Hmm. But it's so hard to get into the lives of Minnesotans and Wisconsinites and people in the Midwest. Whereas in the South, people felt obligated to let you in out of their culture of hospitality. Right. And the North people would just yell at you. And if they're not <laughs> yelling at you, you can yell back at them. Right, yeah. You know, and it's sort of, so there are dynamics by which you can enter into their personal lives. And in here, unless somebody loses a friend and has an opening, like, you, you can't get in. People tend to be much more private. They're friendly, yet mm -hmm. private. Mm -hmm. And they're much more self-sufficient here. Yeah. Which is also difficult gospel-wise because... Jesus can't save self-sufficient people if they're self-sufficient spiritually. Yeah. So after seven years there, um, it was time for me to go, and High Point was the only church in America that wanted me <laughs> to come and pastor there. So I came. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. But, but Madison is the kind of city I've been training for my whole life. I wanted to go to an academic town, and I wanted to go to a place um, where, where people cared about um, engaging secularity, and I wanted to be in a university town. And... I care about politics. My, part of my undergrad is a minor in political science. Mm -hmm. And so, and I learned how to be a redneck in Florida. <laughs> and I'm an outdoorsy person. So Wisconsin's kind of, Madison's kind of perfect. It's perfect for I mean, you. I grew yeah. up on a farm, yep. a beef farm. I know how to be a redneck. So like surrounding <laughs> Wisconsin, I love. Yeah. And yet I can also discuss Nietzsche and Foucault and how it relates to the gospel. Yeah. And so I love Madison and the university and stuff like that. So it's actually as much as I was like, I don't want to go to Wisconsin. Madison was actually kind of a perfect fit, it seemed like. <laughs> and so here I am. Yeah. For, it, was, well, it was five years last June. 2010. Okay. Mm -hmm. I came in 2010. Awesome. Yeah. And so High Point is growing. We've got lots of new friends on staff <laughs> and in the church. So, long, but. so what do you think in the last year you've you've see, how you've seen God use you personally with the story that he's brought you through to right now. How have you seen that come into play in the last year? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that led Alexa and I to come here in the first place was that we felt like God had been shaping me for 20 years. For mm -hmm. this. Um, not just to, like, I don't mean to become a senior pastor. I just mean, um, he's been, he's shaped me perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like I grew up Roman Catholic. Most of the people here don't go to church are ex-Roman Catholics and Lutherans. Right. You know, I I, I grew up in like a semi-rural, like a, I grew up in in cow country mm -hmm. in New York. Well, Madison's in the middle of cow yep. country. Right. <laughs> I grew up hunting and fishing. I grew up an outdoorsy person. Wisconsin is kind of an outdoorsy sort of state, mm -hmm. right? Um, I. Anyways, it, you can just kind of go through these things. I I love the university. I wanted to minister on the university campuses. You know, we're a church that has a ministry 
Um, we, we support crew. There's students here. I spoke down at crew last, this last month. Mm -hmm. So all these things that I spent all this time preparing for and becoming fit really well. Um, even down to my conviction that in church government, it had to be collegial and elder-led, and I preferred congregationalism. It just fit perfectly with what, not only what High Point is, but what it needed after the departure of its last senior pastor. Mm -hmm. So even that got it sort of shaped in my attitude specifically to fit High Point. So there's just so many things like that that I was like, wow, I could never have orchestrated this. Mm -hmm. And it actually increased my faith in God's providence a lot. That's cool. Hmm. Yeah, cool. So that doesn't really answer that this in the last year, but in the last year I experienced that as well. <laughs> Good. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah, that might be a good stopping point. And I know that for some people, it's, it's sometimes it's good to have that kind of background. So maybe next time we'll do you or one of the Perfect. staff members. Yep. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. And yeah, have a great day.